Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And I'm back. You are. For, for those of you that are newer listeners, I'm the infamous Maddie who hasn't been here for a little bit, but we're getting back on track. So I want to thank you all for sticking with us. This is what our third case for season two. Yes, because the first one was four episodes. Four episodes, yes. So our third case, and we just want to thank you for continuing to tune in. As always, if you ever want to get in contact with us, tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, mostly what we're doing right, hopefully. But we do do things wrong. We do. We Everybody makes mistakes. I always think back to that. I think it was the Paul Bernardo, Carla Homoka case where I kept talking about the- The Fifth Element. The Canadian TV show is <laughs> The Fifth Element. And I'm like, wait, no, that's a sci-fi movie. It was The Fifth Estate. Which a listener point? Pointed out and we fixed. So thank you. There you go. Fifth Element, by the way, is on Netflix right now if you want to watch it. I don't. You don't like that movie? No, I've seen it. I don't need to keep rewatching. You don't rewatch movies? Uh, sometimes. I can rewatch James Bond movies. That's like the most. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. That's why we don't watch movies together. There you go. Anyway, so today we're going to go to Alaska. It's our first time in Alaska. It is. Which is exciting, but not our most populated, which probably is why we don't see as many cases, but we're in for a doozy today. So we're going to Anchorage, Alaska, which is more of a city area. So we're going to 1983. And back then the population was around 200,000 people. I was 13 years old. I was living my best life and I didn't know it. And I'm surprised because you said you hadn't heard of this case which I, I if you were 13, I'm surprised. I would think that it would be more popular. But. We didn't have the Google back then or 24-hour cable. Well, but even like the nightly news, wasn't it like national news? Yeah, but it only came on like once and then oh. we were done to the next day. It didn't repeatedly go through. So yeah, I had never heard of this case. So for those of you that may not have seen our title, today we are talking about the Baker Butcher of Alaska. Okay, so let's talk about Anchorage for a second. So back in the 70s, it wasn't a very populated area and they started laying down like oil piping and things to be to collect oil from Alaska and it became a beacon for day laborers and people looking for that type of manual work. Along with the work, a growth came in family populations, but also the number of drug dealings, sex workers, and other criminal opportunities. Well, which usually happens mm -hmm. when you're building city and you're bringing all those workers in and some are single and some are not. Yeah. yeah. So it became kind of a hub for that. So on June 13th, 1983, the Anchorage Police Department got an unusual call. A truck driver described picking up a barefoot, partially clothed woman running down 6th Avenue, handcuffed and hysterical. She had flagged the driver down and when she got in, he could see that there were bruises. She had bruises and other evidence that she had been assaulted. Rather than going to the hospital, she asked him to take her to a motel. And once he dropped her off, he called the police. Good truck driver. Yeah. That's being kind and looking out for someone. So at the motel, police found 17-year-old Cindy Paulson still handcuffed, huddled in a corner in a room. When police were able to interview her, she explained in detail what had happened. She had been engaging in sex work one night, and she'd picked up a small, skinny client with a pockmarked face who wore glasses and spoke with a stutter. So someone you would think is not someone you have to fear necessarily. Maybe a geeky type of guy. The all-American nerd. If there you, you go. Will. Okay. So she got into his car and as soon as she was inside, he handcuffed her to the door and pulled a gun on her. He then drove her to his house in the middle class suburb of Muldoon, just outside of Anchorage. Paulson described the den she was taken into 
where the walls were covered in stuffed and mounted hunting trophies with a pole in the center of the room, which seems normal. It's like a basement and you have the the center support beam. So she was chained to that pole while the man repeatedly raped and tortured her. At one point, the man lay down on a nearby couch and slept. When he woke, he had her get dressed and forced her back into his car, telling her that they were going to his cabin in the woods. He took her to a small municipal airport nearby and began loading the plane with firearms and other equipment. While he was distracted, she fled from the vehicle and ran. And this is when the driver found her. Good girl. Mm-hmm. Because you got on that plane. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Never a good idea. And I saw a source too. She made me think a lot of the, what was our case in Florida? Bobby Joe Long. Yes. The Bobby Joe Long case where the girl who had been taken, she was leaving her fingerprints and yes. evidence everywhere. Yeah. The young girl. Yeah. There was a source that said that she was barefoot because she left her shoes behind purposefully as evidence that she had been in his car thinking already about trying to get this guy caught. So after the interview, as the detective was taking her home, she insisted on stopping by the airfield so that she could identify the plane. When they arrived, she was able to identify the blue and white Piper Super Cub airplane. It was easy enough to get the registration information from the airport along with the owner's name, Robert Hansen. Hansen was well known to the local police as he was the owner of a local bakery that a lot of the officers frequented and he was also an active member of the Lutheran Church. The detective obtained Hansen's address and they immediately went to interview him after having dropped her at her home. When they arrived at his home, both the house, Hansen's car, and Hansen himself matched Paulson's description exactly. And she had remembered like an enormous amount of detail. Everything matched, even the plane. She could identify the plane. Hansen was polite and cooperative, but denied all allegations. He said that Paulson was trying to extort him and that in any case, he didn't see how you can rape a prostitute. That's a quote. I think many a prostitute would probably disagree. Yes, I think many a human would disagree. Yes, that is true. So Hansen also gave police an alibi for the night of the attack. He had been visiting with friends and the friends confirmed his alibi. So his friends confirmed like for the time she was with him and kept in the basement, these friends confirmed that, oh no, he was with us. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll reserve more questions for later (laughs) while you unroll this story. So even with the alibi, Officer Baker, who was the one that had been questioning Cindy, couldn't shake the suspicion that something was off. So he began to dig deeper into the life of Robert Hansen and found that he was not so clean as he appeared. So let's talk about Robert Hansen for a minute. He was born into a strict, austerely religious, and devoutly conforming family in a small town in Iowa in 1939. He was a sickly small child who often worked extremely long hours at his family-run bakery, ruled with an iron fist by his domineering father. His father was a Dutch immigrant that had moved to Iowa and had a bakery. So he was born left-handed, but was forced by his father to use only his right hand. And some say that this paired with the emotional abuse is what caused his stutter to begin with, which he guarded throughout his life. The one thing that Hansen and his father connected was their love of hunting. His father taught him and he became an extremely accomplished hunter. Do you see where we're going with this? So <laughs> I see it. During this time, Hansen often felt powerless under his under his father's harsh control and his mother's attitude of the situation, which was pretty much non existent. I mean, she didn't combat his Clearly father's he was attitude. the head of the household mm-hmm. and she probably was very subservient to him. This is the forties and fifties. That is correct. So Hansen really had resentment for the long work hours and he felt that he was 
was alone and really caged in as a child. Hanson was the polar opposite of what we would think of as a powerful person. He was under the absolute control of his father and his mother, who was just pretty much the yes man. And this really marked a role in his later development giving him the perception that women are weak and easily submissive. Well, that's what he grew up with. Mm -hmm. Mom never stuck up for him. Mom never spoke up for herself. She just kept her mouth shut, head down, and kept going. So by the time Hanson was 13, he was a loner in school. He didn't have many friends. And he really, like I said, became the the all-American nerd. And this was paired with his severe stutter. He then developed severe acne, which is what caused his pockmarked skin as an adult. And it really made his teenage years extremely difficult. I can feel that. I had severe acne as a, as a teen growing mm-hmm. up. Thankfully, you know, my parents are me to dermatologists and things like that. But that really, I mean, let alone what people say about you or point out, it really does affect your self-esteem in a way. Now, I didn't grow up with a domineering father who took me hunting, but I, you know, it it does. So you take the stutter, you take the few friends, you take the loner, you take the pockmarked face. Mm. We talk about this recipes for killers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was not that acne means you're a killer. Let me preface that. It does not. But there's a, I'll have to send it to you then. Well, and you'll see it in, in the resources, but there was part of what I used for research was this, that they did a psychology breakdown as part of a thesis paper or something. And they had this chart. And it showed like age brackets and then different sort of categories or behaviors that show that you're potentially going to be a killer. So it was pretty interesting. I'll have to send you the table. We should start filling that out whenever we have uh, serial killers. So he was obviously teased and bullied relentlessly. He viewed himself as inadequate and inept and he felt very rejected by his peers and especially by girls. After graduating high school, he enlisted in the army reserves and was sent to New Jersey and there he had his first sexual encounter with a prostitute. I'd be really curious percentage wise how often that happens. It can't be much anymore but I feel like that's something you see all the time in movies and stuff. I don't know how you would do a study on that unless you like would a random survey. Like go to veterans homes and say, "Hey." Well, not just army, I just mean oh. young men in general. Oh, young men in general. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. So, he started to frequent prostitutes more often and he found out that he didn't like quickies, I guess is the way he referenced them. Well, you're just paying for a certain period of time, probably 30 minutes or less. However long it takes. Right. Whatever. <laughs> But it's not like you're like going out on a date and mm-hmm. spending time together and then having all night. He was looking more for situations where he had control. So at the age of 21, returning home from Iowa, he once again began working for his father at the bakery. And he soon met a young woman and they married in the summer of 1960. I could not find her name anywhere. So on December 7th, 1960, Hansen decided to burn down his school's bus garage to exact revenge on his school and the way that he was treated. Why the bus garage? Maybe that was close by. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to use what gas was like in the buses. Maybe. I was thinking, why not the school? Yeah. So he was sentenced to three years in a state reformatory, but only stayed in custody for 20 months. So while he was away, away, his divorce was finalized. So I was like, yep, yeah, no, don't don't deal with arsonists. No, thank you. So around this time, Hansen's choice of crime changed and he started developing almost kleptomanic tendencies. So he just loved committing petty theft. It was his thing. He would just go in and steal things like little things. And in later interviews, he admitted to almost ejaculating in his pants when he stole items. Was he breaking into businesses, mm-hmm. like stealing things or going into homes and like stealing underwear? No, this was like businesses. Yeah, it wasn't like B&E or anything like that. It was just businesses. So he was often arrested for shoplifting, 
but he was never charged with any of these crimes, which further built up his confidence. So in 1963, he remarried Darla Marie Hendrickson Hansen. So Darla was a very religious woman with strong morals, working to get her master's degree in education. By the time they were married, Hansen had been caught and arrested so many times that he felt it was time to relocate. Yeah, I have a shocked face because I'm like, okay, clearly, <laughs> Darla, you're an intelligent woman. You're driven. You're getting your master's degree in education. I'm assuming you like being a teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm just, okay, opposites attract, but you're marrying an ex-con who, and granted, you probably didn't know about the petty theft since he was never charged with him, but still, he tried to burn down a school, or at least the bus garage. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seemed like when people talked about their marriage, they were like, she was the perfect woman and he was her blind spot. Like she, he could do no wrong type of thing. She was just blind to these things that he was doing. She had to know to some extent about the thefts. He was getting arrested. Yeah, but not charged. Well, yeah, but what? Oh, I'm going to be late for dinner at the police station again. <laughs> Just bringing him some baked goods. Was she older or were they around the same? Because I'm thinking maybe she was an older woman and she really wanted to get married. And Well, they were around the same age. Who knows? Maybe We might have to look into Darla because I got questions for Darla. So they decided to move to Anchorage, Alaska, and they settled into a quiet lifestyle and welcomed two children in quick succession. And around this time, Hanson became increasingly skilled hunter. So he started hunting more and more and Alaska is one of the best places to do that. And he started actually breaking records for taking down the biggest doll sheep, the ones with the big horns. And it seemed like it acted as a replacement to the petty thefts that he had been committing, almost as if he was using that as his sort of adrenaline rush as opposed to the thefts. So on November 15th, 1971, Hansen was no longer satisfied with committing petty crimes. And can we just keep in mind that this is all information that Officer Baker, who's dealing with the Cindy Paulson situation, now knows about. Like, this is all on record that he's able to find this information. So, as I said, on November 15th, he made eye contact with a young woman at a stop sign. Her name was Susie Heppard, and he followed her and unsuccessfully attempted to kidnap her with a gun. Heppard identified Hansen as her attacker, and he was court-ordered to see a psychiatrist, Dr. Ray Langdon, but served no jail time or probation. How long were they in Alaska at this time? Uh, They married in 63, I want to say a few years. Six days before Christmas in 1971, so the next month, Hansen kidnapped and raped 18-year-old Barbara Fields. She pressed charges, and at trial, Dr. Langdon reported that Hansen experienced periods of dissociation and recommended that he receive counseling and be put into a work release program. He served no time. Besides Darla, we're going to look into Dr. Langdon, too, because what? He kidnapped and raped an 18-year-old girl, and he gets no... And a judge agreed with that? Mm Mm-hmm. A work release program. Even with this past, Officer Baker was ordered to drop the case. So the fact that he has this history, arson, petty thefts. Attempted kidnapping. And a kidnapping rape. And now this woman, Paulson, Mm -hmm. what's her name, Sarah? Cindy. I keep wanting to say Sarah Paulson too, though. I kept the whole time, I was like, Sarah Paulson every time. No, it's Cindy, Cindy Paulson. So, and then Cindy comes to them with the legit story bruises, handcuffs still on her, describing everything perfectly, and he's ordered to drop it? Mm -hmm. Apparently, there was also a situation where his supervising officer was how'd you say? A bit sexist. And he basically didn't believe her because she was a sex worker. So he said, we have this upstanding citizen in the community who officers know, and we have a sex worker 
who is telling us this story and we have no physical evidence. Did he get rid of everything in the basement? He, they did not find any chains or restraints in the basement, but they didn't do like they did a walkthrough of the house, but they didn't do a thorough search. He had invited them to come in and to walk around, but they hadn't done a like a search warrant type thing where they did a search in the house. And where was his wife during all this? She was away. So she had family in, I want to say Arkansas. She had family in another state and she often took trips with the children to go and visit her family. So she was away a lot. That couldn't have sat right with Officer Baker. No. So on September 2nd, 1983, a road construction crew working in an area near the Canic River in an area so remote that it could only be accessed by boat or plane unearthed a woman's body. The woman would be identified as 17-year-old Paula Goulding, who was a sex worker and found in her grave was a, a .223 cartridge. It was at this point that Officer Baker could no longer hold his tongue. He wrote up a report detailing his suspicions and delivered it along with a copy of Hansen's arrest record to Sergeant Glenn Floth, who was in charge of the Alaska PD's Topless Dancer Task Force. That's the name of the task That's force? That's the name of the task force. So the task force was investigating several murders. In 1980, a road crew working in an area near the Anklunta Road found the skeletal remains of a young woman. An autopsy would reveal her cause of death to be a stab wound to her back. However, with no identification or other clues, she could not be identified. And she would be called, instead of Jane Doe, she would be known as Anklunta Annie. Yeah, I'm finding that the story I'm researching that'll be coming up, they name their victims, not Jane, they were Jane Doe's because they didn't know who they were, but they named them after the location. Mm -hmm. So one of them is Christy Crystal Creek because she was found in Crystal Creek. Yeah. I just thought, wow, I've never come across that before. I haven't either. Maybe it was a thing in the 80s. Is yours in the 80s? Yeah, like 70s, early part of 80s. Yeah, maybe it was a thing then. So she was clothed, but not much evidence could be recovered due to the state of decomposition. She was already skeletal remains at that point. Later that month, another woman's badly decomposed body was found in a gravel pit near Seaward, Alaska, which is very close to Anchorage. She was identified as Joanna Messina, a cannery worker, and she had been shot with a 22 caliber weapon, but her case too went cold. In August of 1982, two off-duty Anchorage police officers were moose hunting in a remote area of the Canic River when they stumbled across a shoe sticking out of the mud. Upon closer inspection, they could see that the shoe was attached to a partially buried leg. They called in the crime scene unit, which uncovered the body of a young woman in a shallow grave, her eyes blindfolded with gauze. They also found a .223 caliber bullet in her skull and chest. This woman was identified as Sherry Morrow. She was a sex worker who had been missing for almost a year. Her boyfriend said the last time he saw her, she was going to meet an unidentified client who had offered her quite a bit of money to pose for nude photos. She had never returned. When the boyfriend was shown the clothes and jewelry that Mara had been wearing, he noticed that there was an arrowhead necklace that was a good luck charm that she always wore and she never took it off and it was missing. So he was able to say, hey, her things, those are her things, but this is missing. Now with four murdered women, found in two years and 12 women gone missing during the same time, the Alaska State Police began to suspect what many of Anchorage's sex workers already knew. There was a possible serial killer preying on the city's most vulnerable women. So now we've got four murdered, 12 missing, and one victim that survived. Even though there was a connection with the attack on Sidney Paulson and the murders, there was no physical evidence and they couldn't even get a search warrant for Hanson's home. So Floth went to the FBI for help. There, John Douglas, 
you know, John Douglas, mm-hmm. like the start of the uh, the BAU, behavioral analysis. Yep. Criminal profiler developed a profile of the killer. He would be someone who was well integrated and liked in the community, who worked for himself so he would have no one to answer to for his time, an avid outdoorsman, but with low self-esteem who was afraid to talk to women. Douglas said the suspect would likely have a speech impediment of some type. He just ticked all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Now they had Paulson's statement, but she had since left Alaska, so they had her statement, and they had the profile. They were also able to push the friend who Hansen had... Who had, who had used for an alibi. Yes, they were also able to push him into retracting his alibi saying that Hansen was never with him that night. So on October 27, 1983, Alaska State Police met Hansen at his bakery and persuaded him to come to the station for questioning. While he was in the interrogation room, other officers searched his plane, vehicles, and home while his wife and children waited outside. Bet Darla didn't like that. Mm-mm. In the attic underneath some insulation, they found a stash of weapons, including a two twenty three Mini-14 rifle, which would prove to be the weapon used to kill Morrow and Golding. They also found, hidden behind a panel in his trophy room, several items of jewelry and IDs belonging to the victims. So trophies behind his trophies. Mm-hmm. The most damning of evidence was behind the headboard where an aviation map of the Anchorage area was placed with more than 20 X marks drawn on it. Three of the marks were locations where victims had already been found, leading investigators to believe that there were more yet to be discovered. He denied everything, but through questioning, they were able to obtain the confession of 17 murders and over 30 rapes. If you could see my face, I'm just like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Isn't this crazy? But it just goes to show he was. He integrated himself in the community. He knew enough. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to get away with what I'm going to do, I have to present something else to the community. Well-liked, business owner, stable family, it looks like, you know, all-American in a way. Wife, two kids. Were most of these, do we know, were they all? I know the one was a cannery worker, so she wasn't a sex worker unless she did it on the side. So we're going to get into that, the evolution. So he told police that he had begun his attacks in 1971 attacking any woman who's caught his eye and this is in, this is murders and rapes but he would get caught for those attacks so for example the first two women that he had been caught for kidnapping so he began targeting sex workers who wouldn't be missed so he said he said that he would take his victims out to the bush in his plane and if they resisted or upset him in any way he would turn them loose naked in the Alaska wilderness and hunt them like prey. He would toy with them, allowing them to believe that they had escaped before killing them. He would then redress them as an act of control, taking pieces of jewelry or other trophies to keep for himself. On February 27, 1984, Hansen pled guilty to the only four murders that could be definitely tied to him based on ballistics. Those were Aklunta Annie, Sherry Morrow, Paula Goulding, and Joanna Messina. He was also charged with the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson. He was sentenced to 461 years plus life with no possibility of parole. He also assisted police in recovering the bodies, but five remain unfound. So it's kind of up in the air whether he intentionally didn't help them find the bodies or because of where they were, there was a very good possibility that they had been taken by animals because of the bear population. And I believe one of the bodies that they had found in the very beginning did have was partially mauled by a bear so Hansen was held in a couple prisons I believe one was in Pennsylvania as well before eventually ending up in the Spring Creek Correctional 
Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska, where he was incarcerated until May of 2014. He was then transported to the Anchorage Correctional Complex for medical care because of his failing health. And three months later, in August of 2014, he died of natural causes. He was 75. So back to Darla. <laughs> Let's talk about Darla. Yeah, she div- I would imagine she divorced him. She would have had to. She took the kids to visit him when he was in prison. Darla, Darla, Darla. I mean, it's one thing your husband gets caught up with drugs and he commits a crime or he's in there for DUI or manslaughter breaking in and a robbery. I get that. But this man was a serial killer. Literally hunting women. That's... mm We just can't. We're just sitting here shaking our heads. Not that the listeners can see us shaking our heads here, but it's just insane. It is insane. And the fact that there's still five missing, but at least others at least have been recovered. I'm sure they had loved ones that wanted them back too. But holy crap. He got, how many years was he doing since seven? 12 years. Nobody ever suspected him. Mm-hmm. Till Cindy. Yeah. And who wasn't believed. Like that's the part that floors me is that in all of this, unless Officer Baker had brought Hansen to the attention of the task force, who knows how long it would have taken because they didn't have anything. They This was 1980. They didn't have any physical evidence. They didn't have fingerprints. Well, I mean, they could have, but I don't believe there were any fingerprints recovered because of the decomposition. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have anything. And he wasn't connected to these women. And I think that was part of it was he learned how to choose women that he wasn't connected to and that Thought they wouldn't be missed. Exactly. Throwaways. Nobody would miss them if they disappeared. And mm-hmm. they're sex workers so they may travel where the work is yeah except the cannery worker she had a job she would have been missed Mm -hmm. i'm surprised that didn't she had moved there she was estranged from her family she had moved there from another state a few years before this and so she didn't have really any family in the local area and maybe i don't know what jobs at canneries were like back then if it was a high turnover rate like Mm -hmm. here today gone tomorrow kind of thing but thank goodness for officer baker not giving up going with his gut yeah that's that's good police work Mm -hmm. and the task force though not the greatest name yeah they could have picked a better name so if you like dramatic license there is a movie about this called frozen ground with Nicolas Cage and John Cusack. Wait, is that the one on Netflix? Mm-hmm. So I watched that movie and then I hadn't seen the beginning. I hadn't seen the like intro part because I was doing dishes or whatever. And then I got to the end and they were like, did the thing at the end credits, you know, where they're like Cindy Paulson and Sergeant, what's his face? And I was like, oh my God, that was a true story. And it inspired me. But there was a lot of dramatic license in there. Like a lot. Like they had the most of it was like Cindy staying in Alaska and Robert Hansen still hunting her oh okay when like none of that right happened you got, you got the hell out of alaska mm-hmm. all right well that was a good one wow now i'm gonna have to watch the movie frozen ground it was pretty good the scene the they do a hunting scene it was pretty stressful first of all you know me i wouldn't do well in a bush plane first of all <laughs> getting there that probably would cause me a heart attack right there you wouldn't have to worry about hunting me i would just die in the plane <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is crazy. Isn't that like one of your like worst nightmares? Yes. I mean, out in the middle of nowhere, there's no one around for miles. And the elements. That's why nobody had found these women before. And you said they were naked when he'd set them loose. Naked, yeah. They didn't have shoes. They didn't have clothes, depending on the time of year. All right. Well, that was a good one. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that. At least it didn't involve a bakery because I was so worried when you sent me the titles. You were like, is this a Sweeney Todd situation or something? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to eat baked goods anymore. (laughs) No, you're fine. Just don't go in the woods. (laughs) Noted and done. (laughs) All right. So we wanted to take a little minute here just to talk. I know, as you may know, I've been out for a couple weeks and just based on life and what happens in life, I am going to be stepping back a little bit. I will still be here. 
Yes, I will still be doing an episode at least once a month, and this will give the opportunity for Trish to also have some guest host. Yes, I've asked some close friends and co-workers, hey, would you want to be a guest host? So any of our listeners out there, if you're able to, how do we usually, when we record separately, it's through Zencaster. So if you mm-hmm. have a way to have a microphone and an email, and we could maybe get that set up. Yeah. If you want to be a guest host wherever you are in the world and we can make time zones work. So I'm not up at like 3 a.m. I thought you were going to be like up past 9 p.m., which is normally your bedtime. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Got to make that time zone work. But I'd love to. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you want a guest host and you're really serious, you could pick a case and we can research it and do it together. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Bring the listeners in. That'd be great. And the hope is that I'll be able to to step back in and, and take on more. It's just right now that Life is crazy. Life is crazy. Yeah. Work-life balance is hard sometimes, especially in a pandemic. So, and then throw kids on top of that. And it is a crazy time. So yeah, she's going to step away for a little bit, but once a month and gives, like I said, an opportunity if listeners want to do a, do an episode, I'd love that. It'd be great. Otherwise I'm, I'm bugging friends and fam to guest (laughs) host. I asked actually Emily, who is a friend of mine who did our artwork, who did our logo. Mm-hmm. But she's a great artist. And I said, would you like to guest host? And she's like, yeah. But there were some parameters on the case we had to do. <laughs> she goes, it can't involve children. I'm good with rape murders. <laughs> Nothing involved with people alone in a house. I'm like, okay, I'll try to find something that fits that. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we look forward to having Maddie back with her next exciting episode. So as Maddie said, if you would like to get a hold of us, you can, of course, do that through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. You can also get a hold of us through our Facebook. Facebook page with the same name, Criminal Discourse, and our Instagram page, Criminal Dispot. And we also have a YouTube channel. And we would only ask that if you could take a moment and whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could give us a review, that would be great. If you could give us five stars, that would be even better. So as we always end the show, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime or even do a simple act of kindness like the truck driver who stopped when he saw a woman with no shoes on running down the street handcuffed and actually then called the police. He just didn't let it go. So as always, we're still in this pandemic. Wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands. I know we are all waiting for the day we can go back to normal. I would love to go back out to a restaurant and sit down actually. Actually, instead of takeout, <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. So we want you all to stay safe, but let's also remember we need to look out for one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.